Welcome to Expanding Your Faith, a podcast hosted by Bishop Greer Godsey, the Old Catholic Church's International. Expanding Your Faith brings together a panel of well-educated clergy and laity to discuss modern events with a biblical perspective. Our podcast is about to start. Please stay tuned. Welcome to our podcast. I am Bishop Greer, and joining me tonight is no one. <laughs> uh, a rare occasion where uh, I don't have a round table with me tonight. Um, so I thought, uh, since I wasn't going to have a round table with me, I would um, discuss a few topics that uh, weigh heavy <coughs> on my heart and mind. And uh, and we'll just kind of discuss those and, and make the best of it. So by now, uh, all of you have read, seen, heard the things that are going on in the Middle East. Uh, and of course, the fight still going on in Ukraine. Um, we mustn't forget that there is still a war being fought in Ukraine. But um, I see a lot of people in the last few days, the last few weeks, uh, who have been putting out this notion that it's the end of the world, that Armageddon is coming, that, you know, uh, the fight in the Middle East between Israel and the Palestinians is a um, is a sign that the end of time is here. And so I've gotten a lot of people who've messaged me quite distraught, quite upset, wanting to know, is this the end of the world? Well, the first thing I tell them is, no, it's not the end of the world. The second thing I tell them is, it doesn't matter. If you're ready, your heart's right with God, you don't have to worry about what's coming, okay? Because you're already right with God. But let's go back to that first thing. No, it's not the end of the world as we know it. It's not an R.E.M. song happening in real life. Uh. And in order to understand that, we need to understand kind of what's going on in the Middle East and how um, how long of a process this has been. This has been a fight that's been going on for thousands of years. This didn't just start this week. Uh, many people who tune in are too young to remember the Eight-Day War. They're too young to remember the attacks Israel carried out on Iranian nuclear facilities. They're too young to remember the conflicts that occurred from 1946 to present. Or the conflicts that occurred prior to 1946. 
Um, and they're certainly not old enough to remember things like the Holocaust. And, of course, I think that's part of the problem today is that people don't remember these important aspects of history, and so we're doomed to repeat them. Uh, I want to also first kind of lay out some terminology so that we can all be on the same page and all understand what we're talking about. Okay? And first is the Palestinians. The Palestinians are people that live in Gaza, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, in Israel. 90% of them have nothing to do with the politics that go on between uh, the Palestinian government, Hezbollah and Hamas, which are militant factions of freedom fighters that exist in the Middle East. And they are radical factions. Um, they carry out attacks against innocent people and um, try to damage medical infrastructure, power infrastructure, and things of that nature, which is not good. But 90% of the Palestinians living in the Middle East uh, have no connection to Hamas or Hezbollah. And very few of them have any real connection to the Palestinian government, which is separate. The government of Palestine is, in fact, separate from Hamas and Hezbollah. And many times the Palestinian government has decried the acts of Hamas and Hezbollah. Because this kind of guerrilla warfare doesn't help the Palestinian nation or Palestinians as a whole. It only makes life worse for them. It makes life more difficult for them. And we'll see that in just a minute as we talk about the current conflict going on. And then there's the IDF, which is the Israeli Defense, Fleet, a defense Force. Um, the IDF is the government military, the government's military arm of the Israeli government. Except for forced conscription into the IDF, most Israelis don't have a lot to do with IDF or the Israeli government. You know, so there's a lot of innocent people being attacked and killed in the Middle East on both sides of the fence. Now, to also better understand the situation, I'll put it in terms most people can understand. So our former president um, built this wall, or said he was building this wall, on the border of Mexico to keep out immigrants. Well, Israel built a wall surrounding Gaza, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, with the goal of keeping the Palestinians in, not letting them into parts that were Israeli controlled, but rather keeping them in one centralized area. Those uh, that want to cross from Gaza, the West Bank, or Golan Heights into Israel have to go through one of 
only a few checkpoints to enter where they're put through a rigorous screen process that makes the TSA blush. And most people are denied entry. They're just not allowed in. Okay. That said, okay, um, Israel also controls all the power in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. They control all the food and water supplies going in and out of both locations. They control all the medical supplies going in and out. Any humanitarian aid going into Gaza or the West Bank has to be approved by the Israeli government. And many times it's denied approval. Um, so Israel can turn the power off, turn the water off, turn the food off, turn the medical supplies off anytime they want to, to millions of Palestinians. Okay? That would be like, let's say, for instance, our U.S. government decided to put a fence around Illinois because of all of the, the gun violence in Chicago. So they put a huge fence around Illinois and put all the power plants inside Indiana where they can cut off the power to Illinois anytime they want to. They can deny medical supplies to Illinois. They, um, uh, they can deny food and water to people in Illinois. That's what's going on in Gaza. Okay. That's what's going on in the West Bank. The Golan Heights may have already been taken by Israel. I, I can't recall. Uh, there's not been a lot of fighting there recently, so I'm assuming it is. Now, <clears throat> over the years, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank have gotten smaller. Not because people move out, but because Israel will go in and bulldoze homes and move the fence. Creating more land for Israel. And so, not only do Palestinians have to beg Israel for their daily livelihoods, but they also can at any moment be displaced from their homes and have their land taken by Israel. Okay? So we fast forward to now. The Palestinians have gotten very tired of being squelched, having their land taken, having medical supplies and food and water and electricity denied them. And so Hezbollah and Hamas fight against the Israeli Defense Force to try to stop it. And what ends up happening is Israel then, in an overwhelming show of force, will go in and kill tons of Palestinians. So far, in many of the conflicts between uh, Hezbollah and Hamas and the IDF, innocent Palestinians have been killed. For every one Israeli killed, the IDF kills 10 
or more Palestinians. It's an overwhelming show of force, which only makes the situation worse. More people angry, more people upset, more people hurt by what's going on. This is the Israeli government doing this. All right? They have no concern for collateral damage. None. They view every Palestinian as an enemy. Whether they have anything to do with Hezbollah, Hamas, they don't care. They'll just kill them. And in the last 24 hours, Israel's defense force announced that 1.1 million Palestinians needed to leave their homes and move further into Gaza or face the possibility of death. Because they said anyone caught in the area they were going to come into would be shot and killed on site. So back to our uh, Illinois and our uh, Illinois and our fence deal here. It's like if the U.S. government were to say everyone in Chicago needs to leave. If you don't leave, we're going to kill whoever's left in Chicago. And that's what's happening in Gaza tonight. It's a huge humanitarian crisis. It is crimes against humanity. And as I've said time and time again, neither one of them, you know, Hamas and Hezbollah and IDF, neither of them have clean hands. But the reality is Israel takes the greater bearing on that because Israel has the superior firepower. Israel has the superior numbers. Israel has the greater military. And yet Israel gets away with it because everyone looks at Israel and says, they're God's chosen people. We can't speak against them. God sent prophets to speak against Israel all the time and warn them, you're doing wrong. And yet we silence the voice of the prophets today because, oh, you can't touch Israel. And that's wrong. And so Israel is allowed to get away with mass genocide. And that's what's happening right now in Israel. There is a genocide going on in Gaza. There is a genocide going on in the West Bank. And setting up refugee camps in Egypt is not a solution. It's a cop-out. The Palestinians were there before the Israelis. And we took their land to give it to the Israelis, to give them a home. And part of the agreement for that was that there would be two nations there, the Palestinians and the Israelis. And the Israelis are failing to hold their end of the bargain. They must be made to hold to their end of the bargain. 
they must take their boot off the neck of the Palestinians. It's the only way peace will ever exist in the Middle East. Is if Israel stops being the aggressors. Gaza and the West Bank are nothing more than concentration camps. They're prison camps that Israel funneled all the Palestinians into. And now they're killing them off in mass. With government officials in Israel calling for the death of all Palestinians. And we in the Western world look at it and say, well, that's fine with us. Let's send you money to help you exterminate Palestinians. That would be like us saying to Hitler, let's send you money to help you exterminate Jews. It's the exact same scenario, just different players. Just different players. And a lot of people don't understand that this is a conflict that has spanned thousands of years. There is not going to be an overnight solution. There will not be an overnight solution. But the only way to hope for a solution is to require that both sides sit down at a table and discuss it. And both sides come to a consensus with Israel adhering to the agreement they made in 1946. If they can't do that, then I think that the only solution is a demilitarized zone running right through the middle of Israel and with international forces guarding the border. With Palestine having its own power plants, its own route to receive food and water that's not dependent upon Israel and medical supplies not dependent upon Israel. And the same for Israel. And if that's what it takes, then that's what needs to happen. Because the killing has to stop. There are so many innocent people dying every single day. Men, women, and children who have nothing to do with this conflict. But they're killed simply because of who they swear allegiance to. What nation they come from. What color their skin is. What religion they practice. And that is wrong. That is wrong. And I know I'm not making any friends by saying that on the record. But I'm telling you, 1948, yeah, you're right. Um, my apologies. I, I give them a run start to 1946. 1948. But the truth has to be spoken whether people like it or not the truth has to be spoken the genocide in the Middle East has to stop 
It has to stop. Now that we know this history, let's talk about all the people who have been saying it's the end of the world as we know it. Makes a great song for R.E.M., by the way. But that's about it. A lot of people have reached out to me, worried that this is the end of the world. Armageddon is coming. Jesus will be uh, tap dancing from the clouds any moment to take us all home. Folks, Israel and Palestine have been in a fight since Isaac and Ishmael. 6,000 plus years ago. Yeah, it's been that long. This is not the end of the world. It's just not. Yeah. Yeah, Alistair, you're right. The end of the world is not... I, I firmly don't believe... I, I firmly believe that when... Jesus will come back again when we close our eyes and breathe our last breath and we will see him. I don't believe in the rapture. I don't believe that Revelations is a book of future prophecy. I firmly believe that John was writing in code to the churches in Ephesus and he utilized a lot of things they would understand that we have lost insight on. Um, Scott Hahn, Dr. Scott Hahn has done a great book called The Lamb's Supper, okay, in which he explains some of the symbology that's in Revelations and tries to dispel some of the myths about the fact that it's a book of future prophecy. Does a great job of that. That's Dr. Scott Hahn, The Lamb's Supper. You'd like to pick up a copy on Amazon. I don't make any money saying that. <laughs> uh, it's a great book. And it really explains the fact that uh, John was writing in code. But like with any kind of coded text, whether it be Revelations or Nostradamus's quatrains or... Um, uh, St. Malachi's uh, prophecies of popes. Um, they're written in such a vague way, written in such a veiled way, that anybody could take what is written and make it fit any scenario. I used to watch a TV show uh, I want to say it's probably about 15 years ago now. Uh, called Bible Coded. And it was uh, a History Channel thing. And they went around and talked with these ministers who believed the Bible held coded messages. And all you had to do was put the text into kind of a matrix and you could read out the text, read out these coded sections. 
And towards the last episode, they finally did what I was looking forward to. They just picked a book, and they picked Moby Dick, and they put passages from Moby Dick into a... Um, into a uh, matrix and they were able to pull out what they linked to 9-11 and they linked to you know this event or that event you can take any text and pull out parts of it and end up creating something totally new out of it if you wanted to and the Bible is no exception. Uh, as, as Alistair says, if you look at the Bible, the Quran, etc., you'll see what you want to believe. Uh, thank you, Bishop Gray. And that's true. I mean, take the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, a story that had nothing to do with homosexuality, but today is almost exclusively viewed as a rebuke of homosexuality. And yet, its real story, how we're supposed to show hospitality to everyone, and that not showing hospitality to everyone is a sin, is lost as Christians show zero hospitality to the people around them. So, I mean, if that one story can be twisted, think of what the whole book of revelations can be done with. You know? The whole book of Revelations. So, uh, Revelations was written by uh, John the Evangelist. And John the Apostle. While he was on the island of Patmos, where we now know there were fumes from volcanic vents that might have also inspired some of his writings. <laughs> Not that God didn't use that, but I mean uh, God may have used that to further the writings, you know. Um, so we have to keep that in mind as we read Revelations. It's not a book of future prophecy, but of past events. There is nothing in Revelations that's coming. It's all been done. It was all done in John's lifetime. Uh, the Lamb's Supper was written by Dr. Scott Hahn. Um, H-A-H-N, I think is how you spell his last name. Scott Hahn. Um, he was a Presbyterian minister turned Roman Catholic. So, very good, uh, very good book for those that wish to read it. So, that's what's been weighing on my heart the last week or so. I wanted to take a moment to kind of ease people's concerns. Yes, things look bad in the world. Yes, there's a ton of wars going on around the world. But this is not the end of time. You don't have to keep craning your neck to the sky and waiting. But rather, if your heart and mind is right, then you have nothing to fear anyway. And that's what 
you know, part of what um, I find concerning for a lot of Christians is the amount of fear and concern over the end of the world. If you're truly right with God, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to worry about. Even if I'm wrong and Jesus comes back tomorrow, I don't fear that. I don't fear his return. And so you have to ask yourself at a certain point, why do I fear Jesus' return? Is it because maybe I'm not right with God? Maybe my heart and mind are not right. Maybe I know I treat people badly and that Jesus isn't going to be happy with that. Maybe I know that I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. Or I haven't loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and being. Well, now is the time to think about that. If you're not happy, if you feel that your life is not where it should be, now is the time to make a change. This is your wake-up call. But I firmly believe that we have nothing to fear. I also don't believe in fearing God. Scripture says time and again, fear is of the devil. That the devil gives fear. I don't have to fear God. And if I fear God, then I know there's something wrong. There's something wrong in my heart and my mind. And I need to correct it. Right. Bishop Grace says, The Lord has not given a spirit of fear, but of the power of love and a sound mind. That's right. Absolutely. And so many people today also say, Do you have no fear of God? No. Why do you? <laughs> I don't fear God. I know God's a loving and just God. Full of mercy and compassion. I, I serve the God who says in Psalms, I will that all be saved. Yes, and respect of God is vastly different, Straz, yes. You can respect God and still not fear him. And I respect God, but I don't fear him. And that's a good point. That's a good distinction. And I think a lot of people have lost that distinction that, you know, uh, to respect God is not necessarily to fear him. There's a vast difference between the two. You know, I respect my wife. Okay, bad example. <laughs> I was going to say, I respect my wife. I don't fear her, but I've seen her get angry. I do fear her a little bit. So, when her eyes start glowing green, I know it's time to leave the room. So, 
And Father David, you're right. Evangelicals tend to teach people to fear God. And fear is not of God. Fear is of the devil. And we have to really get that message out there to people that God has not called us to fear. God wants us to love him and love others. Um, I think it's okay to be uh, angry with God. That's a good uh, point, Strath. I think it's okay to be angry with God. I've gotten angry with God many times. I've, I've had some real knockdown drag outs yelling at God. Okay, Job did. Job did. Job just flat told God what he thought of God. And God basically said to him, Okay, are you done pitching your fit now? You ready to listen to me? God didn't strike Job dead. He didn't punish him for being angry with God. But God said to him, Okay, let's see, is your anger well placed? Let me explain to you who I am. And when it was all said and done, Job was like, No, I really shouldn't be angry with you. But God basically said to Job, It's okay to be angry. Just understand where that anger is rooted from. You know? So I, I, I don't have a problem with people being angry with God. Because to me, it's a moment where we can work together on where is the root of this? What is causing this anger? And now let's see if we can't resolve it. And I've successfully had discussions with many people who start out with this absolute anger towards God. And in the end, they're like, you know, I was wrong. I shouldn't have been angry with God. But here's the thing. If we truly believe in an omnipotent, loving, just, compassionate, merciful God, okay, then He truly can handle us being angry. Because if He can't handle us being angry, is he really God? Is he really omnipotent and all-powerful? No. So he can handle us being angry at him. And I've, I've shouted at God. I've yelled at God. I've cussed at God. Because there are times in the most dark moments where that's all I've got left in me. And when it's all said and done, God is still there. And God is still there to love me and say, it's okay. It's okay. You got it out of your system. You okay now? <laughs> right. Anger and love are two sides of the same coin. God gave us emotions to use and draw closer to him. Me and God have a very toxic relationship. I understand that, Mighty. I understand that. Straz, you're very right. Anger and love are two sides of the same coin. A friend of mine once said to me, you only get angry about things that you love. 
So when you get angry with a friend, the only reason you're angry with a friend is you love them so much. And they did something that disappoints or upsets you. If you didn't love them, you wouldn't get angry. You'd just be like, oh, well, I don't care if they're here or not, you know. But when you get angry with them, you're showing that you truly love them. And it means a lot to you for them to be in your life. It's a very good point, Stras. It's a very good point. And God loves us with that same love. And sometimes he gets disappointed in us when we do things that we shouldn't. When we do things that are contrary to the love of God. When we treat somebody as less than. God gets disappointed. And yes, sometimes God gets angry. But God's anger is tempered by mercy and grace. God's love, hear that again, God's love is tempered by mercy and grace. Seriously. And so that's again why I don't fear God. Because I know once it's all said and done, it's that mercy and that grace and that compassion that God will look through to see me. So there you have it. Well, folks, I'm going to wrap up this edition of Expanding Your Faith. I thank you all for joining us. Next week, we'll have Reverend Mark here um, and uh, hopefully Bishop Ben. And we'll uh, have another great uh, um, discussion. Until then, God loves you and so do we. Keep shining bright, my friends. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expanding Your Faith. For more information on Expanding Your Faith, check us out on facebook.com forward slash expanding your faith. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, when we once again attempt to expand your faith, keep shining bright. <laughs>